Amen. Please be seated. So what on earth are you waiting for? What on earth are you waiting for? That is the title of today's message. I told you all a while back that I've got this little garden I've got growing on my desk at home, in my office at home. I've got this little garden of leaf lettuce growing, six different versions of leaf lettuce. And you have to change the water in it. You have to put, not manure on it, but you have to put fertilizer into it. And it grows up, and I've eaten two salads off my little garden that grows on my desk at home. But this past week or so, I haven't been able to even get back into my home office at all. And I happened to go back to look, and things got out of hand. Um, I've got leaf lettuce now that you cannot eat. It's begun to change colors. I'm going to have to go home and do something to it in order to make it the way that it needs to be so that the next round that it grows up, I will be able to eat it. And it begs the question for me, what was making me so busy that I didn't take care of six little plants of leaf lettuce? I want to talk to you today about something that's much more important than that. As usual, I'm going to walk you through this scripture a verse at a time. Actually, the first three verses, and then we'll jump to a big section of it. But look, if you would, at what is being discussed. Because we don't really know what's being discussed. That first verse says this. There were some present at this time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't know exactly what's happening in this scripture, but I'll tell you what we kind of think is happening in this scripture on the basis of some historical writings, particularly by a guy named Josephus. Pilate needed to build an aqueduct. Now, of course, we all know who Pilate is. Pilate needed water, and he didn't have any way to get it in there, and he took some money from the treasury of the temple, is what's been said. And when he took that money from the treasury of the temple, of course, some of the Jewish leaders got really upset about that. And Pilate, rather than have any accountability, because he really was accountable to nobody but Rome, rather than have some accountability for the circumstance, Pilate took some of his soldiers, put them in street clothes, sent them out into the crowd, and if you were heard complaining, you turned up missing. He knocked you off. He took you out. And rather than shut the Jews up, what do you think it did? It made him get louder. It made him hate him more. And so here's Jesus walking into the situation, and these people that had come and had seen or witnessed what had happened, they're telling Jesus, Pilate, during the time of sacrifice, took some of the money from the temple, and if you complained about it, he had you killed. Now Jesus, whether you realize it or not, had to say something about this. The problem is, what would he say? Because if he failed to reply, the crowd would look at Jesus and say, well, you're just like them Romans and we can't trust you. You're disloyal to your own people, the Jewish people. But if he defended the Jews and turned and accused Pilate, he'd have another problem on his hand because the Romans would be upset with him. And then the Jewish leaders that wanted, religious leaders that wanted him out of the way would say, look, he's against Rome and they could come get him. So I want you to look real close at how Jesus deals with this issue. They come, they tell him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and this is what Jesus says. He actually answers them with a question. Don't you hate it when you ask a question and somebody answers you with a question? It's exactly what Jesus did. He said, do you think 
that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Jesus said, you think that because these Galileans were such bad people that that's why they got out in the crowd and they wound up winding up dead? Then Jesus answers the question, no. I'll tell you this, unless you repent, you'll perish in the same way. Now before they could even let that reach their cognitive abilities, he asks another question. In the fourth verse, he says, how about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders or sinners than all the others that lived in Jerusalem? Now, obviously, here we know what's going on. There was something being built. There was a construction accident. And Jesus said, did that happen to all those 18 guys because they were such bad people? And he answers again before they can think, no, that's not it. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I want you to stop and get a grip on what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying to us that every time there's a human tragedy or something bad happens in our life, it doesn't mean that somebody has been a bad person. And so often, we as Christians do that to people. I'll never forget in my first year of real ministry... We had a little girl down, and I remember standing at the casket with mom and dad when some of his co- some, one of his co-workers came up and said, well, I don't know what you did to have this happen. Think about what was said right there. By the way, at funerals, some, sometimes people say some of the dumbest things. Jesus is simply trying to say here, when something bad happens, it doesn't mean that somebody has been bad, and it's not our place to play God and to pass judgment. You remember the story of Job. Job's friends came to him and said, "Uh, uh, Job, you must have done something wrong. What's happened to you? You've lost it all. You've lost your family. Everything's gone. And the reason that's happened to you, Job, is because you must have been a bad person. And this is evidence of your sin. But if that's true in every case, when something bad happens to you or something bad happens to me, Does that, you know, do we really have to say, well, we're just bad people? Jesus says no. In fact, the question I'd raise is, what about Jesus? What happened to him was the worst thing I've ever seen. You see, Jesus' point a little bit deeper is that it's not God that does this. If God was going to punish people because of their sin in this way, we'd all have to look out, wouldn't we? You see, the real question Jesus is posing in the two questions he asked is this it's not really why did these people die the 18 or the ones that were in the crowd his question goes a little bit deeper than that his question is why should you live why should you live why should I live why should you live because none of us without sin and then Jesus goes on and he tells a parable there's this man that had six heads of lettuce growing on his desk no there's this man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none and he said to the vine dresser look for three years now I have come and I've looked for fruit on this fig tree and I have found nothing cut it down it's using up the ground And he answered him and said, Sir, leave it alone this year also. 
I'll dig around it, and I'll put manure on it. Then if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Now, as you read that, it's easy to get lost if you don't know the context. Everybody listening to Jesus' parable knew something that I'm guessing none of us know, and it's this. If you were to go back to the book of Leviticus, listen close. Listen real close, because I'm going to read this verse again to you in a minute, but listen close. Leviticus says this. When you come into the land and you plant any kind of tree for food, you should regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years it's forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all of its fruit will be holy. You'll give it as an offering to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you can eat its fruit to increase the yield for you. I am the Lord your God. Now everybody listening to Jesus this day knew this. They knew that if you planted a fruit tree, you weren't allowed to eat from it for three years. The fourth year you gave it to God, and the fifth year you were able to eat from it. Now, in Jesus' parable, I have it here to read to you again. I'm not going to read it. Let me just suffice it to say to you that this gentleman has waited the three years. He waited the fourth year for God's. He waited the fifth year and the sixth year, and he's now at the seventh year, and this tree has done nothing. It's not the, the fourth year. It is now the seventh year, and he says, cut that sucker down. You can appreciate this idea, can't you? It's taken up space. But I want you to apply it to us. Jesus was applying it to Israel, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But he was also applying it to his hearers. At the end of the day, what Jesus is saying is, I have been waiting on you so long to produce some fruit, to respond to my message, and you've not done anything with it. When are you going to stop taking up space? book of 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, listen close to this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, Jesus is waiting on us to respond to the message. The fruit is repentance. Over in the book of, uh, of Matthew, chapter 3, you got John the Baptist getting ready to baptize Jesus. He saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that keeps with repentance. You don't say to yourselves, we've got God as our Father, for I tell you, God can raise up stones for children for Abraham. The axe is now laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Church, God's waiting. I want to throw something at you real, real different. There is a day of judgment coming. And we can't, we can't afford to presume upon God's kindness and long-suffering towards us forever. If you were to go back to Isaiah 5, you'd find there these words. Let me sing for my beloved a love song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. 
He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he waited for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more is there for me to do for my vineyard that I've done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge, and it will be devoured. I'll break its wall down. It will be trampled underfoot. I'll allow it to be made waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up, and I will command the clouds that they do not rain upon it. Now, just so you know, Isaiah, that's what Jesus is referring back to here in this parable. And Isaiah is saying, this is what God did with Israel. He planted them like a fig tree. He treated them well. He waited on them and waited on them. And instead of producing good fruit, they produced wild fruit. God waited on Israel for centuries. He waited through three years of direct ministry by Christ. He waited about 40 more years until the Romans trampled the temple. That's when the tree was cut down. But that's not the important part of the parable for you and I. If you walk away today asking yourself the question, as you read the parable or as we read it together, what happened to the fig tree? You have asked the wrong question. You're missing the point of the parable. If you walk away today saying, well, gee, Joel read that story that Jesus gave us about the fig tree that was planted and it waited three years, four years, five years, six years, seven years. And the owner said, let's cut it down. He said, no, let's put some manure on it and wait one more year to see what happens. We all want to know at the end of the story what happened, right? But you're asking the wrong question. That's not what Jesus wanted us to ask. He he doesn't want us to walk away saying, what happened to the tree? He wants us to walk away asking this question. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? What makes you weep? You know what makes me weep? A friend of mine lost his 31-year-old son this week. I, I, I talked to Bobby a few times this summer, but his 31-year-old son died. And I find myself at home this week, and I was shedding tears for my friend Bobby because of his son. That, that, that broke my heart that he has to go through that. I turn on the television set, and I see what's going on around the world, and I can tell you that I have actually shed some tears over that. I cannot imagine the world that we live in. I think God probably weeps about those things too. But I'll tell you what I'm sure God weeps over. I'm confident he weeps over. I'm sure that God weeps over the heart that he has waited on and waited on and waited on and it doesn't repent. I'm sure that God weeps over the soul that he has created in his image and it refuses to take that image upon itself. You know, the time's short. And as God weeps, the day is closer than ever. I was thinking about this, and I remembered that phrase. You've heard it before. It's a simple phrase. Opportunity only knocks once. You've heard that, right? But it doesn't apply to God. 
God knocks and knocks and knocks. When we were doing our, when we were, do, we're doing, you know, these videos. If you haven't seen our videos of people in the church, go look at them. We haven't had one for a day or two. You should see another one soon. But we were doing them. Catherine here said to me, she saw a picture, and I've seen it too, of Jesus standing at the door and knocking, but there's no handle on the door for him to open it. You ever seen that picture? There's a picture out there where they're knocking on, Jesus is knocking on the door, but there's no handle for him to open it. And the reason is somebody inside the house has to open the door. You want to know what God weeps about? He weeps about the door that's on the hinges, has the handle inside with the latch, and the person that stands there and says, I can't let you in. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's patient toward us. He doesn't wish that we'll perish, but that all of us would come to repentance. I've already mentioned the world around us right now, but I want you to think about it. Look at how the world is right at this moment. Someone asked somebody, I stole this from another preacher, what's the death rate in your state? You know what the answer is? One per person. Someone else said, there are people dying right now who have never died before. I want you to look at our world, church. when When I hear them say, three and a half million people have been displaced in Ukraine. I, I can't get my head around that. What, what do you do? We, we have occasionally somebody come here to the church, and sometimes it's a problem for us to help with gas or something. Three and a half million people on foot who have left their entire life behind them, and it got blown up with a bomb. Three and a half million people. What do you do when you turn on the news and you find out that Putin is bombing a theater that clearly on top has the words twice written, children? We live in a world with three superpowers, not two, three, all of which are armed with nuclear weapons, and if one of these guys happens to eat the wrong pizza piece tonight, tomorrow morning he may push the button that sends the whole world into chaos. Just look at our own country, crime is up. I know I sound like Elmer Gantry, but you know as well as I do, this is true. That verse still holds true. God is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's not not slack. He's patient with us. He's waiting on us. Don't cut the fig tree down. Let me work it a little bit more. I know some people don't respect the message by Eugene Peterson, but I have fallen in love with it as of late, and I want you to hear how, how Eugene Peterson translates that verse up there. Listen to this. Don't read along and try to sort it out. Just listen. God is not late with his promise as some measure lateness. He is restraining himself on account of you, holding back the end with a capital E, because he doesn't want anyone lost. He is giving everyone space and time to change. Why don't you cut down the fig tree? Because God is patient. Because God is waiting on us. And that brings me to my bottom line. 
You know, most bottom lines I give you are supposed to move you. If you don't know what the bottom line is, it's how I've preached since I've been at Westbrook Park, pretty much. I, I go through a verse at a time, like we just did, chat about it a little bit. Then I bring you down to one thing. And usually that bottom line is supposed to, I tell myself it's supposed to move you to some type of action. Maybe you be kinder tomorrow. Maybe you be gentler tomorrow, something like that. But not this one. This one's about us. It's not something you can do for someone else. It's all about you. God's patience is perfect. Don't miss the deadline. When Peter says the Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward us, and he doesn't want us to perish. It tells us that God's patience is perfect, and the reason God's patience is perfect is because he takes you and I into consideration. He's not wanting us to perish. A friend of mine years ago used to come where I worked every day and sit with me for a while. <laughs> you sort that out. Where I worked, he would sit. But anyway, <laughs> we'd chat. And he got mad at, I know that some of you have heard this story before, but it always comes to mind in this context. He got mad at my preacher before I was in ministry. He got mad at my preacher. He had gone to the grocery store, and, and Bill, my friend, was about 90 at the time. Could get around and walk well, but he, he comes in there, and he was mad at the preacher. And the reason he was mad at the preacher is because the preacher was in line at the grocery store ahead of him, or rather behind him. Bill was ahead of the preacher at the grocery store, and the preacher is standing there waiting to check out, and Bill turns to the preacher, and he says, if you want to go ahead of me, go ahead. I got all the time in the world. And the preacher stepped in front of him and said, that's what you think. <laughs> we live as if we think we've got all the time in the world. We don't. But God's patience is perfect. But one day, 2 Peter 3.9 says, he's patient towards us, not willing that we'd perish. And then in another place, he says this, yet a little while, and the coming one will not delay. 2 Peter 3.15, just a few verses down from the verse I've been harping on here for a while, it says this, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. What is the patience of God? It's your salvation. It's my salvation. God's patience is perfect. He's not waiting because he's busy. He's not waiting because he's got nothing better to do. He's waiting because he loves us. If you're still with me, I'm about to commit expository, an expository crime. I hope I don't lose you with what I'm about to say, but for whatever reason, this thought has bugged me since yesterday morning, and I'm going to put it in here. I went to the gas station yesterday, to fill up that old junk white truck I drive. 80 plus dollars to fill my gas tank. Now before I go any further, I want you to take your Republican, your Democratic hat off and set it over here. Okay, this is not politics. Did you hear what I said? Take off your hat and set it over here. I'm not talking about politics. 
I try to preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And these days, our politics make it so tough to do that. Set those hats aside for a minute. As I'm pumping the gas into my truck, I'm thinking to myself, my government has told me that the increase in the price for gas is a result of Russia and their oil being taken out of our supply. The gas price went up. And I've been told by my government that that's the price that I have to pay to defend freedom in the world. Stand there pumping that gas and I say, okay. But then I come home and I see this video of a theater that twice has the words children on top of it. And I think about this so-called no-fly zone. I think about these MiG jets that you're hearing about in the news. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with why we aren't doing anything about this. Little kids. If I'm paying extra at the pump to defend freedom, but I'm not willing to pay the price to let this guy defend his own country, I'm a little bit lost. So you play it all out and you say, well, nuclear bombs, World War III. But what we aren't talking about at all is where's God? Isn't God just? Doesn't, doesn't God see how terrible it is? Have you ever thought those thoughts? Does it bother you that I'm asking them? You know, my friend that lost his 31-year-old son, I guarantee you he's asking them. And it's okay to ask those questions. God's big enough. What I want you to know is God has an answer. I want you to look at Romans 9.22, which I've put on the screen. And if you're tired right now, I apologize. We're going to get done. We're headed there. But look at this passage. What if God... Desiring to show his wrath. Now, before you go any further with that thought, it doesn't mean that God's an angry God. It means that God's a just God. It means that the children in the theater, there will be something that happens about that. It means the, the, the rapist and the murderer and everything else that you can imagine, there will be something done about that. But what if God, who knows that he is just and wants us to see that, has endured with much patience the vessels of his wrath that are prepared for destruction. You see, what Paul's saying is, we live in a sinful world and we will put up with sinful things, and more than you having to put up with it, God's putting up with it. Why? Because he loves you. And why does he do that? Paul goes on, I don't have it on the screen for you, but in the context of that verse, here's what Paul says. He does this in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, those that he has prepared beforehand for his glory, even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I call my people, and her who was not beloved, I call my beloved. And in that very place it was said to them, you are not my people, they are there being called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out, though the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. You didn't, I know it's a lot and it's mouthful, but let me take the time to tell you what Paul just told us. God doesn't like what's happening any more than you do. He doesn't like it any more than you do, but God loves you so much. He's not ready to step in yet. God wants to put some more manure on the tree. He wants to see if there's a chance that some fruit might come off of this thing. He wants to see that if he knocks one more time, we might just grab the handle and throw open the door and say, please come in. But in the meanwhile, all this stuff is happening. God's waiting patiently. Remember what the bottom line said, God's patience is perfect. It really is. But the second half of that is that we got to watch we don't miss the deadline. I'll close in a minute here, but I want her, I want you to read this verse. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I'll cut to the chase. God's patience is perfect. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself. He is kind, he is forbearing, he is patient. But he is those things in order to lead us to open that door, to produce the fruit, to respond to his call. Don't miss the deadline. I'm pretty confident that I know why God's delaying. I think I've laid it out to you. I'll say it one more time. He's waiting because he loves you. He's waiting because he loves me. He wants us to produce fruit of repentance to him. He's waiting on us. When you get to the book of Revelation, when you get to the, first, to the second and third chapter of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia are addressed by Christ. And he speaks to the church at Thyatira. And I'm not going to read that to you, but there's one verse in there that I want you to hear. And I'll put it on the screen. It's this one. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. Speaking to a, to a church, he says, I gave you time to repent, but you refuse to repent. And the words of John the Baptist ring in the back of my head. And now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. It happened to Israel. It could happen to us. I want to tell you before you leave today these words. I know why God's waiting. You've been here all morning. Now you do too. But the question really is, why are we? We know why God's waiting. Why would we? When we were first married, I had a church in Carroll County. We lived in East Liverpool. It was 55 miles from home. It took us about an hour and five minutes to get there, and that's with me flying out Route 30 at about 65 the whole way. Nothing irritated me more than to get dressed for church in East Liverpool and have to be at church at 10 a.m. and to go out there and jump into the old 79 Caprice Classic 
and wait for my lovely bride to come out. I had very little patience. I mean, it felt like a bottle of ketchup on steroids. Anticipation, you know. I'd start tapping my feet. I'd start patting my leg. I'd go up to the front door and holler, Time to go! I think occasionally I might even reach down and went, Beep, beep. Pretty sure if I did that, yeah, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> you got that. But I'll tell you what I never did. I never pulled out. Right? Now, I mean, I got my, she got her just rewards. We'd get there, and she'd go out behind the church and throw up. But, because <laughs> I'd drive so bad. <laughs> but I never pulled out and left her. Can I tell you something? God's patient. He's waiting. The question is, why are you? Jesus died on a cross for your sins. That shows God's love toward us. He stands at the door and knocks. He begs us to let, him open, let us open the door and let him come in. If you haven't yet, man, oh man, don't wait. Let's sing together.